Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we are actually launching our No Escape series in the book of Jonah uh, with an attempted escape in Jonah 1 this morning. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the book of Jonah. I'm sure there are all kinds of ideas that come to your mind, right? Some of you are thinking to yourself, oh yeah, Jonah, it's a whale of a tail, right? Actually, what we'll find is, is there is a primordial fish that is going to swallow up Jonah. But I think that Jonah is such a good story that we can actually become distracted almost at every point from the main purpose of this book. We can become distracted by the fish, the plant, and the, the worm that we're going to meet in Jonah. We can also get distracted by the great city of Nineveh. See, God sends Jonah to preach this message of just five words in the Hebrew to Nineveh, calling them to repent and turn from their sins, and we will see that they do. But don't lose sight of this. Jonah's message might be to Nineveh, 
but it is totally for Israel. So don't get distracted by Nineveh, but also don't get distracted by Jonah. He's not the hero of this story. He's actually looking a lot more like the villain as we follow the story throughout. See, Jonah is the prophet who really represents the best of Israel. And yet, as you follow along, you'll notice that he looks at every turn self-absorbed, narcissistic, racist at times, and self-righteous. I love what D. Or G. Campbell Morgan famously quipped about the book of Jonah. He said, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. See, this book is ultimately about God and about who God is and about God's character. And if we want to understand ourselves, we need to see God and all of his glory in this book. This book, it isn't about a great fish, a great city, or a great prophet. Jonah's about a great God with a heart for the nations. See, God created Israel to image his glory to all people. He wanted them to reflect his character to everyone. And he believed, he knew, that if they were to see the character of God, they would be drawn in by the beauty and glories of who God is. See, God created Israel to image himself to the nations for their good as a blessing. Now, just to show my hand up front, I want you to know that I actually take Jonah to be a historical figure. Uh, Jesus seems to treat him this way in Matthew 12 and Luke 11 as he speaks about him. Uh, Jonah also shows up in the book of 2 Kings as an actual prophet. So if you look at 2 Kings chapter 14, you'll see a, a description or a mention of Jonah, this prophet of God, who prophesied in Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, when you hear Jeroboam in the Bible, typically that's not a good thing. Jeroboams aren't typically good guys in the Bible. Jeroboam II is is not necessarily a good king. But what we find is is that when Jonah came to prophesy, he prophesied in an interesting time in Israel's history. Assyria had just defeated Syria, Assyria with an A, Syria begins with an S. Uh, Assyria had defeated Syria. And so there was a kind of peace that broke out for Israel and Judah because Assyria just didn't care much about them at this time. And so Assyria... As they ignored them, we find that Jeroboam II actually was able to reign 41 years. And in 2 Kings 14.25, we find a description of his accomplishments. He, we are told there, restored the borders of Israel from Lebohemath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke, catch this, by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Heifer. So Jonah prophesied to Jeroboam II, and he expanded the borders of the kingdom, recovering land that had previously been lost to Syria. Uh, Things are looking good for Israel at this time uh, as they looked at their borders expanding. Uh, If you were trying to understand what it would have felt like, I think it felt something like Dow was up, Nasdaq was up, the unemployment rates were down, employment rates were up. It felt like things were going really well for the nation of Israel. And yet, and yet, in 2 Kings 14.24, we are told that Jeroboam's reign was also characterized by that common description that we find of Israelite kings. We are told there that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, his dad, which he made Israel to sin. So he led God's people into sin, not to image God as he had been called to do as the king with whom he had made covenant. See, Jeroboam II looked more like his dad Jeroboam than he looked like his God. His 
genetic DNA spoke more to his identity than that spiritual DNA. And he led Israel into idolatry and futility. He led them away from a meaningful life. See, the main point of the book of Jonah is really to remind his covenant people that he created them to image his glory to the nations. Their vision had become far too small for what they had been created for. And God here invites his people to repent and turn back to him so that they can become the best versions of themselves, the God-glorifying people that he made them to be. And that all centers on how God's people respond to God's voice and his revealed will for their lives. See, this book is for Christians too. Uh, At Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Jews would read this book. And as they would read through, when they would conclude, they would say together, we are Jonah, we are Jonah, we too are Jonah. And I believe in Christ, this book has a message for us too. See, we treat God in the same way that Jonah does, and we will see that. But you need to guard yourself this morning against the temptation of thinking that Jonah is altogether unlike you. I believe there is much to learn about ourselves in the person of Jonah. So if you're taking notes, a great place to start, our big idea, it's this, it's simple, don't run from the will of God. Let me say that slowly. Don't run from the will of God. Is that good? All right. Point one. First, Jonah fled God's will and God's presence. Jonah fled God's will and God's presence. Now, you'll notice the first words of this book. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. These are not the same words as you might hear a guy give to a girl when he says, you know what, I think the Lord has told me that you're supposed to marry me. Or uh, the woman who turns to the guy and says, you know what, God just like, told me, I didn't know this was going to be the deal, but that I'm not supposed to be with you. I'm actually supposed to be far away from you. That's not the kind of word of the Lord that we're talking about here. See, this phrase tips us off that God's given his prophet his words to take to Nineveh as a direct revelation from God. There's no mistaking that this is a word from God. He's not confused about it. He knows exactly that this is the very word of God, the oracle of God that's been given to him. And here's what God's word says. It says this in verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But... Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. See, God sends Jonah to Nineveh. See, Nineveh was the self-professed great city. There's an irony here. God calls them a great city because they saw themselves as a great city. They were the capital of a great nation of Assyria from the time of Sennacherib, who is known as calling himself a great king. Do you see it? This is a people who really thought much of themselves. They thought they were great. And though hostilities had ceased, Assyria would later carry Israel off into exile in 722 BC, just a couple of decades after this was written. See, they were great in their own eyes until later Babylon and the Medes would conquer Assyria in 612 BC, just a hundred years later. But it was the greatness of Nineveh's sin that caught God's attention. Did you notice that? It wasn't 
their greatness as a people that God said, oh, I need to just take note of the greatness of this king and this great city and this great nation. He says, no, it's the sin of this people and its greatness that has compelled me to pay attention. David Stronach of the University of California in Berkeley gave a picture, a snapshot of the kind of evil that we're talking about in Assyria. He described it this way. He said, in a stone pillar, one Assyrian ruler boasted of nobles I have flayed. And he reported 3,000 captives I burned with fire. I left not one hostage alive. I cut off the hands and the feet of some. I cut off the noses and ears and fingers of others. The eyes of numerous soldiers I put out. Maidens I burned as a holocaust. Appropriate stuff to read during Mother's Day, right? But I often hear Christians speak of looking for a direct word from the Lord. And you might want to just be careful what you ask for. Because it could be that the word that comes to you is something that is terrifying. See, Jonah received a direct word from God to preach to his terrible enemies. And Jonah's problem isn't knowing what God's will is. Jonah knows what God's will is. Just imagine what it would have sounded like to the ears of the Israelites just 20 years later as Assyria is carrying them off into exile as they were reminded of the prophecy of Jonah about this very people that God called his messenger to go and preach to. They had to ask, did God really send Jonah to preach to these guys? I'm guessing that Jonah does what most Israelites would have wanted to do. He went AWOL. He went down to Joppa. Did you see that in the text? It's really interesting. I think, I think he's picturing something here for us visually. He, he went down to Joppa to get away from the presence of the Lord of heaven. So God's up here, and he's like, I'm going deep down to get away from him. So he goes down to Joppa. And then you'll notice he catches a boat to Tarshish, and then goes down into the bottom of the boat. He's going down deeper and deeper. Now, what's Tarshish? Well, geographically, Nineveh is to the the east. And, And so, as you look at this, he should be going east, but instead, this boat is going to Tarshish, which is to the the west. So he is going as far away from the place that God has called him that he can get. He is getting far away from the will of God and the presence of God. So geographically, Tarshish is far from God. But not only that, we find spiritually, Tarshish is often used in the Bible as a place that pictures farness from God. In fact, Isaiah 66, 19 calls Tarshish the place where they had not heard of my fame or seen my glory. And so Jonah is thinking, where do I go? I'm going to the place where people haven't seen God. They haven't seen God in a while, and that's where I want to be, far from where God is looking at folks. And Jonah is running from God's word, both geographically and spiritually. He is running from God's presence. He is running from God. And don't miss this. Jonah not only rejected God's direct command to him, but he also rejected God's special revelation to him in the Scriptures. I mean, has has Jonah the prophet forgotten David's question in Psalm 139? Do you remember that? Where shall I flee from your presence or from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And he follows it with his answer. If I dwelt in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your right hand shall hold me. There's nowhere to flee from the presence of God. Now Jonah's running not from God's omnipresent view or his omniscience and his ability to see him at all times. He is trying to run from the felt presence of God and the mission that he's been called to. 
See, Jonah ran from God's will and God's word and God's presence. And catch this, God's will is more dangerous to Jonah's will than it is to his body. That's his concern. Jonah has longings and desires. Those are the things that he's worried about, even more than the danger that's going to come to his body. And we'll see that as the, later, as the letter plays out. But he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. Anybody ever had that situation in their lives? Yeah, few. Okay, the rest of you, it's going to happen. It's important to take note here that we are both Jonah and not Jonah when it comes to understanding God's will for our lives. Because we're going to have situations where we are called by God's word to do something that we don't want to do, but we need to make sure we understand what that will is. We don't need to be confused about that because there's a lot of confusion about the will of God. You know, I grew up under a teaching that really kind of wrecked my life for a few months, um, probably longer than that, but three months that I really just recognized See, I grew up under a teaching that there were three wills of God. You've probably heard this before. Uh, if you haven't, there's a, a book that kind of outlines these. Gary Friesen has this book. It's kind of uh, just a real, I think, basic book to understanding the will of God. It's called Decision Making and the Will of God. And he lays these three out. He says, you first have God's sovereign will. That's that secret plan of God that he has for everything in the universe, God's will will be done. It's his hidden secret will that's going to take place. But second, you have God's moral will. And that is the, the will that's revealed clearly in the scriptures, in the Bible. We, we find the clear will of God for the people of God. It's not hidden. It's, it's shown. It's, it's, it's on display for us. It's clear. We believe the scriptures are fully sufficient to lead us to know God's will at all times. You know, we, we really believe that the Bible is able to lead us and equip us to do every good work that we need to do to be pleasing to God. That's basically what our understanding of the Bible is. That's the second will. But there's a third will that I'm just not so sure about. In fact, I'm pretty sure about how I feel about it, and that is an individual will that God has for you in your life. Now, what this means is there's kind of an individual plan that God has for your and my life that it's our job to decode. Now, catch me. I believe God has a plan for our lives, that he's meticulous in his sovereignty. But this says that we are actually sort of called to, to decode that will and, and not mess it up or things get really bad really quick, right? And not only that, sometimes it feels like we have one of those like decoder books. Do you all remember those? Yeah, my cool friends had them. I never had one. But apparently you got these cool rings that you could wear to school and stuff and you could use them to decode those books. And it's almost like God has given us that book and he said, but I'm not giving you the ring. And you just kind of have to figure it out. See, I was taught that God's will was like that. It's like going into a room full of a bunch of doors and every decision you have to choose a door. And if you choose the wrong door, then you're going to end up in another room with another series of doors. But these are all doors that open up into worse decisions than your best life now. So think about this. You have an infinite amount of decisions, and each decision could carry you further away from the will and the pleasure of God. Now, do you see how that could be a problem for, like, day-to-day living? I mean, what if you get lost in that labyrinth and you can't get back to, like, the center of what God has for you? Maybe that's you this morning. You feel like, man, I have messed up, and God has abandoned me, or I have abandoned God or something, but I feel so far from him and you could spend your life paralyzed in fear, sensing that you've missed God, and, his, and you're destined for plan like B, C, D, or even worse. 
And every decision could cause you to drift further from God. And this is what happened to me in college. I, I actually had a girl that I had dated for a couple of years. And um, she was like sensing that it was time for me to propose. And I had like really messed up by not doing it yet. And uh, she told me about it one day. And this was the line that she gave me. She said, um, so I know that God wants me to marry you, but I'm not going to do it. And I never want to see you again. Now, you can imagine how that hurt my feelings. But I'll never forget her words. And this is the thing that that really messed me up. The part that ruined me wasn't the breakup, but that she had such crystal clarity on what God wanted for her and me. How did she know? And how did I miss it? How did I miss God? And I was depressed for months trying to figure out if I had missed God and if I would ever get back to the center of his individual will for my life. But catch this. The Bible doesn't speak of God's will for your life in this way. Instead, the Bible calls you to obey God's moral will as clearly displayed in the Scriptures. The Bible doesn't call us to decode God's hidden will for us. The Bible calls us to be faithful to His clearly revealed will in the Scriptures And he promises that it is enough, the word of God is enough to live a life that is pleasing to him. So let me just offer really quickly some counsel on how you can run to do the will of God as a Christian led by the Holy Spirit. I just think this is critical so we don't misunderstand Jonah from the onset. First, this, study God's word like your life depends on it. Study God's word like your life depends on it. Because it does. See, God's word is life-giving, and we are better for knowing it. God's word is our spiritual food that leads us to heavenly treasure. Our Bibles are God's direct word to his people in Christ. And if we know God's word, we will know his will for us. So just trust. Trust that God's word is sufficient to equip you for every good work and every good decision. If you start looking beyond the boundaries of God's word, and you start looking to hidden tea leaves and those sorts of things, you're going to start putting your confidence somewhere else than the voice of God. And we need to listen to and put our confidence and our hope in God's word above all else. Second, seek to apply what you know is true in God's word. Seek to apply. Did you know that faith leads to faithfulness? And faithfulness leads to faith? It's a beautiful thing. Like as you obey and trust God's word, you're going to find yourself growing in confidence in God's word. Here's the reality. That doesn't mean that you're always going to win when you obey God's word. Sometimes our confidence grows through learning that like, wow, I disobeyed God's word and I paid for it. And wow, God's true. Who knew that? Other times it's going to be that you obey God's word and you see the fruitfulness of it. And sometimes we'll obey God's word and it hurts. And yet we trust God that he is sovereign and good. We'll get there. But we become wiser through both victories and defeats. And God blesses faithfulness. I have seen that time and time again in the lives of God's people. They are faithful to his word. When, when it seems costly and it doesn't make sense, what God's word clearly says, they don't embezzle money when they're not supposed to. They show up to work when they promise to. They honor their employers. And go figure, people trust them. Like that's the way that God's word and his world works. Be faithful. And usually God blesses faithfulness. God always blesses faithfulness, but sometimes it's in ways that we don't perceive. See, it is God's will for your life that you are faithful. Third, pray constantly asking for wisdom from above like James 1 calls us to. See, we don't need to pray about whether or not to commit adultery, right? Are we on board here? 
Like, don't need to pray for that. Like, I don't know if God wants me in this marriage anymore because I kind of like her. Like, no, word of God is super clear about that. But so many of the questions that we have that we're talking about are between two good options or maybe like two bad options. But both options are actually good in the sense of before God, they're not evil. And, and we're trying to discern what's best. Like, what do I do to honor God in this moment? And we need to discern what is best. And maybe God will give us an impression, but impressions aren't a trustworthy guide to the will of God. Sometimes impressions are like, I shouldn't have eaten Mexican last night. And sometimes impressions really are God giving you a sense of his pleasure. And it's great, but we need to make sure that we're always going back to the word of God for clarity. Praying to him and asking for clarity and decisions. Fourth, seek godly counsel. I've told you about the guy that showed up in my office with his fiance in a U-Haul in the church parking lot and asked for counsel on whether or not he should marry her or take a new job and move out of the country. It's like, you know, maybe before the U-Haul was like loaded and packed up and the girl had the ring on her finger in the car would be a great time to have these conversations. We need to seek godly counsel up front and on the way, right? As we're moving into it. So don't miss this. You need wise Christians in your life, preferably in the context of your local church. You need brothers and sisters around you Men and women who can speak truth into your life. So let me just ask you this this morning. If your next big life decision were to hit today, like right after the service, who are you going to to get wise counsel from and you're desperate for it because you know it's going to be good? Who is that in your life? And I've got like 20 names that pop to my my mind like that. Who are the names on your list? Do you have like a, a fave five, right? That you know that you could go to and would speak into your life. And if you don't have that, Who's discipling you? Who do you trust? And what is it that you would need to change today? I mean today, so that you are investing in someone who is wise, who knows you, who is going to be ready to help you when life hits, and you need to have help to seek the will of God in those decisions. Today is the day. Don't wait for the decision to pop up and then say, oh, now I need meaningful relationship. You need meaningful relationship before the decision hits. So who will love you enough to tell you when you're running away from God? Is there anybody in your life that if you're Jonah and you're running from God's will, they would actually say, guess what? You're running in the absolute wrong direction. I need to help you turn around and come back to Christ. I want to rescue you from the damage and the destruction that you're running into. Who would do that for you? I hope that you all, that we all have those people. Fifth, do something and trust God's providence. Do something and trust God's providence. Eventually, we have to make decisions. That's just the way that this life works, right? You can't just sit and like, say, you know what, I, I can't choose what restaurant to go to, so I will just starve to death. We eventually have to make decisions. And we have so many choices today. I mean, I get completely wigged out when I go to get cereal for the kids, right? Like, it, it sounds simple, go get Cheerios. And I'm like, wow, they've got chocolate Cheerios now, and apple, and cinnamon, and apple cinnamon, and apple cinnamon chocolate, and Reese's Butterfinger and, and Snickers, and I'm sitting there going, this is, I don't know what to do. And I have to call home, and I'm like, Johnny, I need help. <laughs> I'm so confused. Like, what should I do here? And, and eventually I just grab one and run, and it's always the wrong one. <laughs> and I'm not saying you need to pray over your boxes of Cheerios. Like, hopefully you have freedom in Christ on that. You realize that you don't need that. But life can get overwhelming with all the choices that we have and all the opportunities that we have. And and, and maybe you sometimes feel like, man, I just picked up this this box of Cheerios and you're in the car and you're thinking, I think I should have got the chocolate ones. 
And we have FOMO, right? Like that fear of missing out. Like, did I just miss, like, not just God, but like the best Cheerios ever? And how much weightier does that feel when it's actually a job that you turn down or that you pick up? Or, or, or a, a woman that you pass on or that you commit to? Or whether or not to have children? Or, I mean, there are all kinds of decisions that we're making constantly and we're just wondering, did I, did I mess it up? And I want to just say this. When, when you know God's Word, you really are listening close to God's Word. And you're seeking God's face in prayer. And you're seeking to live faithfully. And you seek godly counsel. And when you, you really are trusting God with the decisions and trusting that he's not trying to trick you, right, out of your best life. When you really believe and trust that he is for you. We can trust Romans eight twenty eight, the providence of God, because it says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. That God is working out the details for you as you're seeking to be faithful to God. Isn't that, isn't that great confidence and encouragement? Like, it's okay. The chocolate Cheerios are fine. Like, you can enjoy them and not worry about the others. This is God. God's in this. But don't miss this. Jonah ran from God's will and ended up in an even worse place than where he imagined obedience to God would take him. He finds himself in the midst of a storm. So notice, second, that running from God's will is more dangerous than God's will. Running from God's will is more dangerous than God's will. I was recently on a plane uh, to a pastor's retreat, and um, like mid-flight, they said, hey, we have to pull over and take a, a stop in Nashville to get gas. Now, you can imagine what's going through my mind. I'm thinking, like, isn't that like pilot school day one? Make sure you have enough gas? Like, this isn't a car. Like, we didn't pull off at the Shell station, right? I mean, this is a plane with hundreds of people on it. And so it was also turbulent. And so there's literally this lady in the back aisle who's terrified. She's crying out, I don't want to die. Over and over again, I don't want to die. And um, none of us really were, were worried about it. We felt bad for her. But, you know, if at that moment, the pilot would have gotten on the intercom and started crying out, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, that would have been a different scenario, Right? Well, that's kind of what we find here in verses 3 to 10. We find that in the midst of this boat ride, a storm is hurled upon them by God. And it is the men that are the bravest at sea, that have the most experience, that are actually terrified. So take note here. Professional mariners are afraid of a mighty tempest while Jonah sleeps like a baby in verse 4. Notice first that Jonah sleeps as the mariners freak. Verse 4 to 6 says this. But the Lord, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God, and they were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship out into the sea to lighten it up for them. But Jonah had gone into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. Call out to your God, and perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we might not perish. So take note, these professional sailors, terrified of the sea. They know nothing of the promises of God's covenants with Israel and with David. They know nothing of these. They are yet desperate for answers for what's going on here in a way that Jonah appears not to be desperate at all. 
Now, in the Near East, it's important just to take note of what water symbolizes. It's meaningful in the Bible and in an ancient Near Eastern context. Water represented chaos. It represented evil and separation from God, as opposed to land, which represented order and good things. So God is this personal creator who brings order out of the chaos in Genesis 1. Do you remember that? That's where the chaos is is there when it begins, and yet God brings order out of it. You'll find that not only that, throughout the Bible, God demonstrates his authority over the sea and the waters. So in Job 9.8, God describes how unique he is and that he alone stretches out the heavens, and it says that he tramples on the waves of the sea. I, I love this image. Chaos is evil and separation from God, and God's like, this is what I do on your water right? Like not intimidated, not intimidated by the chaos. He is sovereign over it. You'll remember Moses raised his shepherd's staff to separate the Red Sea so that Israel could run on dry land from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the wilderness to the promised land. And here too, God is sovereign over this chaotic sea. But notice, notice how desperate these sailors are. They turn to works and religion to save them. Did you see that in the text? Like, what is it that they think is going to save them as they feel attacked by a God? They're like, works and religion. I mean, things don't change much, do they? You'll notice they begin by trying to save themselves through works or human efforts by hurling cargo over the the side of the ship, right? They're trying to work themselves into salvation. Like, hey, if we can just get this boat light enough, we can make it through. But what happens as they do that? As they're desperately seeking to be saved from God, as they're working hard to save them, you'll notice that they can't hurl cargo off the boat faster than God can hurl wind and water upon them. They can't keep up with God. And then they turn to religion, praying to their various gods, right? To no avail. Like, everybody pray to your God. We've all got different gods. Just, like, let's send a line up, see if anything works. And you almost feel sorry for these sailors who are desperate for answers but don't know where to go with it. And where's Jonah, the prophet? This mouthpiece of God. Where is he when people are desperate for salvation? He's catching Z's in the hull of the ship. This Phoenician cargo boat captain unwittingly awakens Jonah. Catch this, this is beautiful. With the very words God used to disrupt his comfortable life days before, saying, Arise. Arise. It must have been like a nightmare. Like he hears that that sound of God's voice again, yet this time through this Phoenician boat captain. We'll find another thing here. Notice what happens next in verse 7. Pagans fear God more than Israel's prophet. And this is, I think, an indictment on this prophet in Israel. It says this, verse 7. And they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they casted lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, just to be clear, this text isn't encouraging you to cast lots. 
to discover the will of God any more than the story of Gideon really is encouraging you to lay out a fleece to figure out the word of God. Uh, both of these stories are, that's not what they're saying. Like, here's how you figure things out. Like, hmm, I wonder if I should uh, take this job today. I'll just flip a quarter. Like, that's not what it's saying. Or casting lots, which were kind of like dice. But take note that God's providence here displays itself in the lots being cast as revealing that Jonah's God is responsible for the storm. So Jonah describes him as a Hebrew, a a worshiper of Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, just take note of that. This is a man who has good theology, right? This is good theology. This is not a small vision God kind of God. This prophet says, who is my God? He made the heavens, He made the dry land and the sea. He is sovereign over all things. And I'm sure the the captain and the crew are going, and so why are you hiding in the hull of our boat? I mean, great theology and bad living. I mean, what a great reminder for all of us that, man, you can have really good theology and just be really bad at living it out. Good theology does not promise good living. Now, it's hard to live well if you don't know God's word. But if you're one of those who knows God's word and you're not living well, I think that's a bad place to be. We don't need to be down in the bottom of the boat hiding from God. That's exactly where we find him. See, the God of heaven identifies Jonah's God as the supreme God, the ultimate source of all power and authority. And it's out of the mouths of sailors far from God that they ask in verse 10, What have you done? See, these guys know nothing of God's special covenant relationship with Jonah, and yet still they see how insane Jonah is more clearly than Jonah sees. But don't miss this. The significance of the language here is fascinating. Did you take note that it begins with God hurling a great wind upon them? And then the sailors are hurling cargo over the side? And then Jonah tells the sailors, to hurl him into the sea to save their own lives. Now, the image of a a world drowning in chaos as God's prophet sleeps is powerful, isn't it? Isn't it convicting? Now, it's not an exact application here, but you have to ask if there are people God has providentially brought into our lives who are drowning as we comfortably sleep in our comfortable lives because we don't want to be inconvenienced. Maybe even today on Mother's Day, you have people that will be around your table that do not know Christ. Maybe some friends that are here today that need to hear about Jesus and their need for salvation. And you don't want to mess up Mother's Day, but they need to hear about Christ. This captain waking Jonah up and the sailors scrambling for their lives, looking for answers, reminds me of a quote by a famous magician. Everybody's like, I love magicians. His name's Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller. He's actually an Amos, uh, I mean an atheist. And he, he famously said this. He said, if you believe, now this is the mouth of an atheist. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it like socially awkward, an atheist who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize, not to tell them about Jesus? That's out of the mouth of an atheist. Asking, how much do you have to hate me not to tell me about Jesus if you really believe Jesus is who you say he is? 
Are you sleeping this morning while your neighbors or children or coworkers or spouses or friends are drowning spiritually and looking for answers? See, Penn Jillette is an, an atheist, and he says that that's hateful. I hope Trinity Bible Church is a, is a people, that we are a people more and more who lovingly tell others of their need of Christ, rescuing people from vain attempts to find life in works and religion. The only one that can save them from the storm and the chaos and the wrath of God that is coming is Jesus. Now, when works and religion don't work, notice the sailors throw Jonah in in verses 13 to 16. And here we find, finally, that God willed for us to have one greater than Jonah. God willed for us to have one greater than Jonah. I am so glad we were not left with just Jonah. The prophet that likes to sleep in the boat while everybody's dying. Now, here's what he says in verses 13 to 16. He says this. He says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And catch this, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But just take note that the pagan sailors call out to Jonah's God, begging him not to lay the guilt of innocent blood on them. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm reading this story and I'm going, does Jonah look like innocent? I mean, he seems to be kind of the reason and cause for everything that's going on. But I think the, the, the image here is, is that he hasn't done anything to sin against them. And so he's innocent before them. And so for them to, to, to kill this man would actually bring blood guilt of a God upon them. And so they are, they are terrified that they would wrongly take this man's life, mess this up, and then be held accountable for it at risk of their own lives. And by the way, if this is a God who like has control of the storms and the sea and the waves, like not exactly the God that I want to mess with and get this wrong. But just think about this. They've made every human effort to escape God's judgment. They come to an end of themselves and their hopes and saving themselves. And that's when they obey the word of the prophet and make a sacrifice of Jonah, who is described here as an innocent sacrifice to save their lives. The one is sacrificed for the many. They pick him up and they throw him overboard into the chaotic waters, which immediately become smooth as glass. See, this demonstrates that the sacrifice was pleasing to God. The storm stops. Just as Jonah said it would, the, the chaos stops, the storm stops. But verse 16 is fascinating. Think about this. The men were fearful of the storm in verse 5. They were afraid. That's a, a reasonable amount of fear. But verse 16 says that when God stopped the storm, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. It's even more interesting if you look at it in the, the Greek version of the Old Testament. See, Jonah adds a verb for fear with a noun for fear to an adjective for greatly, like mega. That's the word, magan. And so he's essentially saying they weren't just afraid, they were double afraid a lot, like mega a lot. I would say they were mega scared squared. They were terrified. 
Like this is a lot of fear. This is an otherworldly kind of amount of fear. Now what is more fearsome than riding a boat into a hurricane? Well, it's being confronted with the Holy One of Israel. See, Mark records his account of a story of another man in the Gospel of Mark who slept in a boat in the middle of a great storm as his own disciples feared for their lives. And his name is Jesus. Now, I read a commentary by Olimar Cope, a person who was writing on this story in Matthew. And he draws six parallels between this story in Jonah and the story of Jesus in the boat. And they all apply to Mark. In Mark 4, 35 to 41, he, she says, in both stories, they have a departure by boat, a violent storm at sea, a sleeping main character, a badly frightened sailors, a miraculous stilling related to the main character, and a marveling response by the sailors. But Mark 4 offers another critical link beyond the ordering of Matthew. While the disciples are terrified of the storm, you'll notice that when Jesus calms the storm in Mark 4.41, Mark 4.41, it says this, and they, this time the disciples, not these pagans, right? But, But the disciples of Jesus who have walked with him were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Now you remember that the sailors responded by being mega scared, squared when God calmed the sea once Jonah was thrown in, the one for the many. That exact phrase is used in Mark 4.41 in the Greek to describe the disciples as being filled with great fear. Mega scared, squared. Both stories climax, they climax both of them with greater fear at the calming of the waters than the storm that almost took their lives. Now that's irony. I just fixed the problem and you're scareder now. Why? Well, I recently looked at all of the uses of this phrase, which is just used 13 times over six centuries between the 4th century BC and 2nd century AD. Three of them are here in Jonah and Mark, this great fear that comes over them. And almost without exception, this phrase is used to describe the experience a human's existential experience of coming into the presence of a God and almost always with reference to Yahweh himself. This is a unique, transcendent, otherworldly fear that is brought about by being in the presence of God himself. Now, this makes sense of Jonah 1 with the sailors understanding that God stopped the storm. But what does this mean of Jesus in Mark 4 when Jesus stills the storm? The disciples' attention It is not on invisible Yahweh. They have laser-like focus on the man, Jesus, who they've been walking with. They should know of all people who he is. And in this moment, they say, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The point is that Jesus is the one greater than Jonah. He is very God. They understand in that moment that this is a person who is very God before us, not fully, but partly. What other man could do what this man has done in calming the storm himself? He is the only one who can calm the storm. He is the only one who can bring peace with God. And he might have been asleep in the boat during the raging storm as disciples could not sleep. But in Mark 14, it was Jesus that was greatly distressed. Just 10 chapters later in Mark 14, it was Jesus that was greatly distressed and troubled 
as he approached the cross at Gethsemane. You remember that? Then it wasn't Jesus that was having sleep trouble. It was the disciples. As he approaches the cross, the disciples slept and could not stay awake, even as Jesus tried to keep them up. Hey, could you just stay up one more hour? What's wrong? Why can't you stay awake? I'm awake now. Why are you asleep? And when confronted with the cup of God's wrath, Jesus said, nevertheless, what? Not my will, but your will be done. Even when it comes to taking on the full wrath of God for you and me, he is the one greater than Jonah who doesn't hide in the boat, but who takes it willingly for the glory of God. He is the one who came to fully do the will of God in every way. And Jesus went alone to the cross, the one for the many, so that we might have peace with God. See, we deserve the wrath of God. We were running in our hellbound race, but it was God who came like the hound of heaven to save rebels like you and me. Isn't that good news? So don't miss this. We need more than a prophet or to know God's secret hidden will to please God. We need Jesus to do what Jesus did. We need, what we need most is God's revealed will that climaxes and culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. We need the God who has willed to save sinners at the cost of his very own son, Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf to bring us safely to God tells us that we can trust God, not just with our lives ultimately, but every single day between now and then. It's all because he paid the ultimate price for you and me. He held nothing back. So if you're a non-Christian here this morning, let me encourage you to put your faith in this man, Jesus Christ. Ask yourself, who then is this? He is the only one who can bring salvation to you. See, he is the one who came to die for your sins, to bring you peace with God, and who was raised on the third day to declare victory to all those who will believe in Jesus, that he died for you to satisfy your guilt before God, And so that his just wrath would be satisfied in him that you might become a child of God instead of an enemy of God. This is the goodness of Jesus Christ. And only Jesus has the authority to save you. Only Jesus laid down his life to bear the wrath of God for you. There's none like him. Trust him. Trust him today. And don't leave without talking to me or another Christian about what it would take for you to become part of the people of God. In a moment, we're going to be singing, All I Have is Christ. And there's a a line that we're going to be singing together that reminds me of our sermon today. It's this, but as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, cost of that ticket to get on the boat, you looked upon my helpless state and you led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. And now all I know is grace. Praise Jesus. Let's pray.